0: Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our Transfer Market insiders and pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week we take a deep dive into the feasibility of Saudi interest in Manchester United and with Abu Dhabi's involvement in Man City and Qatar's PSG we look at the ramifications of nation states taking control at football's biggest clubs. Raheem Sterling crashed home his first England goals in three years during a superb performance in Spain, but it's the Manchester City star looking to make celebrating on Spanish turf a more regular occurrence as new contract talks appear to hit a brick wall. And We preview Chelsea versus Manchester United at Stamford Bridge on Saturday as Maurizio Sarri's rejuvenated side will look to apply more pain to Jose Mourinho's stuttering charges. Okay, guys, we're going to start today with some extremely interesting news from behind the scenes at Manchester United. Ian, you have some information regarding a potential Saudi takeover at
1: Manchester United, or certainly an investment. I think um, investment is probably the uh, the watchword here, Johnny. Um, uh, I've been told by contacts about a month ago when the share price at Manchester United hit an all-time high of $24 per share um, that the reason for that was there were rumours in the financial markets about uh, an investment in the club. Now, what I'm told is that The Glazer family, particularly Avram and Brian, who are the uh, uh, co-chairmen of the club, are keen to um, indemnify some of the debt, which still exists um, partly from the original takeover, but more from non-voting share issues and bonds since then, which come in around £460 million and restrict somewhat the trading of Manchester in terms of cash flow and um, uh, trading limits on what they do regarding expenditure. Now, if they indemnify, and by that I mean they, they allow inward investment in the company, probably, uh, and most probably, in the shape of non-voting rights, and that's shares, then they can write off some of that debt, pay back the loans that they took out, to hedge funds etc uh, which frees up cash flow which in terms of what Manchester United as a football club means that there will be, And let's face it Manchester United is not a poor club, we know that but there are certain restrictions regarding recruitment of players etc cetera, etc cetera, and wages paid they would be able to um, potentially look at signing a marquee player for a record transfer fee in the next uh, two windows although obviously more Realistically, in the summer window, because as we know from experience, people do not spend 100 million plus in the January window unless you're Barcelona and Felipe Coutinho. So, I think interesting news for Manchester United fans in that sense that um, this uh, Saudi Arabia interest from um, we know the, the, uh, the crowned uh, prince um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who uh, will entertain. Uh, Avram Glazer in Riyadh next week at a World Economic Conference. Uh, I think it's very um, poignant that there have been meetings, at least three in the past six months, and said another one, which will take place next week. I don't think the Glazers are necessarily looking to sell Manchester United, as has been mooted in some reports. I'm not sure that's the case. Uh, I don't think that they are ready to sell just yet, despite the fact the club is valued upwards of £3 billion. When um, And that represents a, a 300% plus profit for the Glazer family uh, in terms of the, the price that they paid for the club. Um, but um, in terms of Jose Mourinho, in terms of Manchester United fans, in terms of the team, uh, any investment which happens in the next few weeks or months would free up significant amounts of money to be invested in the team, I would suspect, uh, in the summer window of 2019.
2: Yeah, I think um, I think when you, you talk about the, the sale of Manchester United, um, which is a, a story that um, flares up probably on an annual or a biannual basis, you've got to you've got to break it down into its constituent parts. Um, the Glazers uh, see Manchester United as a money making exercise. Um, they take, or well, the last set of accounts, they took twenty two million pounds in dividends out of the club. Um, there's another, I think, in the last set of accounts, there's about 20, another 22 £23 million pounds being used to pay interest payments. So you've got um, there £45 million pounds of, of profit um, on the club each year. Um, as Ian points out, uh, the club has hugely increased in, in value, as most major football clubs have during the period of the Glazer ownership. So its stock market value is over £3 billion pounds at the moment, where uh, a, a nation... Um, and and probably you're only looking at nations now that are are, are capable of, of buying clubs like Manchester United uh, to come in and try and buy a whole, it wouldn't be 3.1 billion. You'd be looking at the, the Glazers would, would expect a significant premium on that price for, for a takeover. So you're probably looking at 4, 5 billion. There's no indication that I've heard um, that the Glazers... Um, have been actively trying to sell the club, are looking to sell the club. Um, I wouldn't rule out that we are such a, a phenomenal offer to come along that it could interest them because instead of taking that, uh, that annual um, you know, 20 million or so in dividends and seeing the, the, the uh, overall value of the club increasing year by year, they could cash in and take billions out in one go. Um, but if you look at the way they've they've dealt with their ownership of the club over the last um you know five six years it's been to put a small chunk of it in in the hands of other investors so I think there's twenty percent has been sold on the american stock market um, for substantial sums again that, that all goes to the glazer family the returns on that have all gone to the glazer family um, but they've done it while retaining all the voting rights for themselves, so the classes of shares that they they've had, they've allowed to go onto the open market don't have um, directorial or voting control over the direction of Manchester United. So uh, a predator investor buying them would it would make no no difference to them in terms of um, being able to take over the club because they have to still get hold of the Glazer shares to do that. So they've they've, um, they've milked uh, the club in two ways, essentially, Um, the uh, the dividends off the yearly profits and by selling a small percentage without affecting uh, the security of their ownership. Um, Why would Saudi Arabia want to buy Manchester United? Well, um, the the, the most coherent suggestion is that the Saudis have looked at what um, Abu Dhabi has done with Manchester City and what Qatar has done with Paris Saint-Germain um, and see it as a viable strategy for themselves. So buy a football club for um, political and public relations purposes. Use, use the club to promote the name of your country, as Abu Dhabi has done with Manchester City, and to give yourself um, some leverage internationally by being involved, um, blatantly involved in the most popular sport in the world um, and having a uh, an important cultural chunk of a country. And that's, you know, you can't describe Manchester United as anything else than that. It's, uh, it's an important part of English-British culture, the biggest, most uh, popular football club there. Um, it's not financially a massive um, uh, concern in terms of the, the the total economy, but it has it's in the newspapers, it's on the television, it's on the radio every day. So you own that football club, you have a presence that you cannot get from any comparably sized um, other business. Um, the wor- the the noises from Manchester United are that they don't intend to sell um, and that there hasn't been um, an offer for the club. I think it's probably not coincidental that uh, Saudi Arabia feel as uh, the story has come out at a time in which Saudi Arabia is in a, is in a particularly difficult political place um, with uh, reports of uh, the uh, killing of a, an anti-monarchy um, uh, journalist in the Saudi Embassy in Turkey which has forced um, the American and British governments to, um, to take that accusation very seriously so that might not be coincidental that that's happening now. I'd be very surprised if it was to turn into a full takeover. I think it's clear that, uh, that um, the Glazers have links with Saudi Arabia and have encouraged those links. And You can go on the Manchester United website and see uh, an article from last year about a strategic partnership Manchester United have set up with the Saudi Arabian government to promote football in Saudi Arabia, and it's um, it's described in quite proud terms. As Ian says, a um, member of the Glazer family is due to go to Saudi Arabia next week. So the, the links are there, but um, to go so far as to say that they're ready to sell the club um, in, in a complete form to Saudi Arabia, I think, is too far at, the, at this stage.
1: The one thing I'd, I'd add to what Duncan said is that... Um... In terms of business and the, 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 the business of industry, if you want to call it that, when you um let's just say you 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 fly a flag, or it's not quite Manchester United or the Glazers hoisting their knickers up on the flagpole yet, but when you fly a flag which says you may be willing and open to an investment from one party, then what you do is is you alert other parties to the availability of an investment in Manchester United, which ultimately is going to make you money, as the Glazers well know. And as the New York Stock Exchange well knows, and as everyone who was buying up shares after the defeat to Brighton Hove Albion, and take to take Manchester United's share price to that uh, record high that I spoke about before, um, you're not going to lose money. So for the Glazers, this kind of uh, information stroke news going out there in the international forum is very positive for them because not only will they see interest from potentially Saudi Arabia uh, in terms of inward investment, but if they are not looking for a buyer, which I I believe is true what Duncan has said, that's not the case right now, but merely fishing for potential inward investment for the reasons that we stated, then you know, they may find someone else who wants to invest at a greater price. So effectively, they are selling themselves, or at least certainly putting themselves up for the potential of inward investment at a premium price, which again would benefit the Glazers, would benefit Manchester United, would probably, you'd like to hope, from the fans' point of view and the team's point of view and Joseph Marine's point of view, benefit... Uh, the expenditure that they would then have at their disposal for um, buying players in January and or next summer. So uh, I do think that there is uh, more to come from this particular story, from this particular situation. Um, If it's not the Saudi Arabian uh, royal family who invest in Manchester United, I think you can be sure there'll be other very large uh, hedge fund investors both uh, New York Stock Exchange, London Stock Exchange, etc, who will be interested in exploring what kind of money the Glazers may or may not be looking for for a small stake in the club. Again, non-voting rights but at the same time reducing the debt, freeing up capital etc, etc, and therefore um, allowing other people to become uh, a part of the investment at the club and again they will expect to recoup a lot of money from that and Johnny, I know you're you you know like a wee flutter. You know, if you want to go and buy yourself a Manchester as share at twenty four dollars, I wouldn't uh, deter you from that.
2: I just um, we just take it to the football side and and imagine the scenario where Saudi Arabia or another entity of that type to buy Manchester United, it would be um, a huge shock to the the, the rest of European football. Um, Abu Dhabi if they'd had the option to buy Manchester United when they bought Manchester City, would have bought Manchester United. Qatar, if they'd had the option to buy Manchester United when they bought Paris Saint-Germain, would have bought Manchester United. Why? Manchester United are with Real Madrid. It's either them or Real Madrid who um, perpetually have the biggest revenues in European football. Manchester United almost always make a profit. Uh, Their wage to turnover ratio is usually 50% or below uh, they, I think they have the second highest commercial revenues in world football. Uh, David Kahn did an article recently um, where he was talking about the Glazers taking over a billion uh, pounds out of Manchester United during the same period as which Abu Dhabi put over a billion into Manchester City. Now, imagine Abu Dhabi, for example, or Saudi Arabia, buys Manchester United and adds that financial, w- wipes out the debt of Manchester United, which would be easy for them to do, um, wipes out the need to make a profit and starts um, boosting their uh, potential to sign footballers and uh, pay them higher wages by uh, injecting capital into the club in the same way that Qatar and Abu Dhabi have done with Manchester City and PSG. The club would have way more financial uh, firepower than any other team in Europe. Um, and you'd really be looking at a, a, a serious problem with competitive balance within European football because if they could ally that um, that uh, firepower on the pitch to uh, a more coherent, sensible management structure, then they're going to have a huge advantage over their rivals. So um, it's something not just to pay attention to for other clubs but to be seriously wary of and they really should be hoping that the Glazers remain in situ. Because um, it's far better for them to have a Manchester United kind of um, with big debts and with uh, uh, American owners who don't always make the right decisions from the football perspective than it would be to have a club who had no debts like Manchester City and owners who, like Abu Dhabi have, have been very logical, uh, strategic and effective in appointing good people to the key positions in the football club and, and year on year making their team more effective on the pitch.
0: You know, we're seeing the future here in a way because we've got PSG with Qatar, Man City, as we've already discussed, with Abu Dhabi. We've had Chelsea and Roman I- Ibramovic in terms of um, an oligarch coming over. What I'm driving at is clubs that are taken over for political means rather than mm-hmm. necessarily for the joy of football. Is that a-, a worry for the future of our game?
1: I'm not sure it's a worry, Johnny. Um, I would say that. To translate the financial speak, which I you know uh, you know, can we can sometimes get bogged down in, but it is important to articulate, um, you know, what happens in business because it is unequivocally related now to to what happens in football. Is that if Saudi Arabia had been in charge, uh, or sorry, had, had been in possession of ownership of Manchester United two years ago, then there is no doubt in my mind uh, that Neymar would have signed for Manchester United and not for Paris Saint Germain because they would have had the financial wherewithal uh, both for the fee and the contract. I'm not saying Manchester didn't have it, I'm saying the Glazers would not sanction it, uh, because they want the club to make a profit, because the profit means that they get their dividends, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. When you've got a benefactor like Abu Dhabi, like Qatar, like Roman Abramovich, then the need for profit becomes much less uh, of a, a factor when you decide to spend money and uh, politically I think you're absolutely right in saying that um, football clubs, major football clubs um, are increasingly becoming um, a a, not I would say not a pawn exactly because obviously we still have um, regulation in terms of UEFA and FIFA as well as the fact that these clubs have to uh, conform to um, financial fair play etc but what you do have is you, you, when a state owned club effectively which is PSG and Manchester City they do have access to almost uh, infinite um, finances um, which are then regulated uh, in the way that we spoke about however Manchester City do not operate in that way right now um, because the Glazers need and want to make money for themselves and their family. Um, But if you put Manchester United into that same situation as PSG and Manchester City find themselves in, and in a way Real Madrid, because remember, you know, a few years ago when Real Madrid were in incredible debt, et cetera, et cetera, the Spanish government weighed in and bought their old training ground for a ridiculously overpriced amount of money, which cleared Real Madrid's debt and effectively led them to transfer... Um, their training ground to what is now the Ciudad Sportivo, which is a state-of-the-art facility uh, uh, elsewhere in the suburbs of Madrid. But the Spanish government were the ones who effectively funded that and Barcelona and other clubs in La Liga cried foul at that. But of course, because it's Real Madrid, then basically those... Protests get drowned out uh, because uh, you know, Real Madrid is essential to the core of uh, the culture of, in, in Spanish life, uh, not never mind football. So, the establishment club, Ian. Yes, absolutely, Johnny. An establishment club. And Manchester United are an establishment club whether they want to be called that or not. And as we saw with the protest by fans against the Glazers many years ago now, um, it, just, it just goes away like it does with Real Madrid because I, I was once told by a very powerful football administrator who I I won't quote but was involved both in FIFA and UEFA that if there was any business that he would invest in because it could never ever go out of business would never become bankrupt, it'd be Real Madrid or Manchester United because the name itself carries so much weight so much history and so much power that whatever happens no matter how recklessly they spend and if you look at clubs like you know, and I wouldn't say they're comparable, like Leeds United, who went, you know, went down the divisions, et cetera, after reckless spending sprees. Um, One closer ch- at home. Well, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, indeed. Rangers Football Club as well. Absolutely. And, and and who would be regarded as an establishment football club. But those clubs are not protected in the same way because they're not Manchester United or Real Madrid. Barcelona, even, is not protected in the same way because it's owned by the fans, by the socios effectively, albeit there are investors there. So... Yes, it, you basically underwrite uh, a massive um, project if you get the chance in Manchester City, in PSG, and in this case of Saudi Arabia, where to, uh, I guess, event a takeover bid for Manchester United. Listen, I don't believe that if the Glazers were offered a ridiculous amount of money, and, I, and Duncan mentioned five billion, the current market capitalisation of Manchester United in terms of shares is three point one, that they would say no because that's a family who then benefit in in you know upwards of one point five billion pounds personally, um, and that's before tax or from that kind of sale. And people say that you know the the TV rights etc. for the Premier League will eventually level out or go down well they're showing no sign of that right now so in terms of investment it's still a very good investment um because the underlying um root of the turnover finance and profit remains in the majority from broadcast rights and of course those broadcast rights when they come up for renewal again in 18 months time will have the digital influence of netflix and amazon prime etc bidding for that Uh, even suggestion of of um Networks like Disney being involved. So again, five billion—the last time, five point one billion—it was. No, no one can actually say that it won't go down. That it will actually go up. So again, in terms of investment uh, opportunity, albeit Saudi Arabia don't need the reward or the income from it, you, it is a very good investment, and it will continue to rise. So you've got a situation now where. You know, I saw Bruce Buck, the Chelsea chairman, you know, make a I think rather uncouth remark last week about the dangers of the unwashed being allowed to share in football's rich as well. I don't think there's any any chance of that really, because the way that football's going, the rich will get richer.
0: Okay, well, we're going to move on now to Raheem Sterling, who performed admirably uh, against Spain for England last night with two goals. Uh, his first, I think, for three years in, in an England shirt, and he played magnificently. But Ian, you have some news regarding his future at Manchester City.
1: Well, Johnny, it's, it's, with Ryan Sterling, It's there's always a kind of feeling of Russian roulette when it comes to contract negotiations, I find. Um, his agent, um, who was the same agent who who departed the company that he was employed by, because he was a personal friend of Ryan Sterling, and uh, then became uh, an independent agent of Ryan Sterling while he was still at Liverpool, um, decided when the contract negotiation with uh, Anfield came up to to play a, a big gamble, and that was to say, well, unless you make us the best-paid player at the club, and remember, this is at a time when Luis Suarez was scoring 35 goals per season, then we're off somewhere else. And that, as we all know, the, the protracted and, and sometimes cantankerous uh, negotiation tactics where Sterling gave a very, um, I think, uh, unguarded but also very, uh, let's just say, um, not silly but but certainly um, he should not have said some things he said about his pay at Liverpool at the time because um, it just it grated on the people who pay season tickets at Liverpool at the time claimed that he was being underpaid by a certain amount of money, etc., etc., which, of course, resulted in his transfer to Manchester City for the money. Um, A lot of people, football people, certainly a lot of people I spoke to, coaches, um, even player managers, etc., etc., believed that Sterling's football development would have been better suited to staying at Anfield at the time. Now, retrospectively, we can't say that's the case, because he's been a massive success at Manchester City, uh, the player there with most assists uh, last season in the Premier League, uh, a goal-scoring record which, again, is impressive as well. Now, up-to-date from that is that um, Manchester City entered into negotiations with Sterling and his representatives uh, before last summer's World Cup, and uh, they were hoping to upgrade Sterling's contract, which expires a year and a half from now, I believe, um, not quite to the level of Kevin De Bruyne or Sergio Aguero, but certainly close to that, and Sterling's representatives decided at one point that it was not enough, that he should be better paid than that, etc, etc, and chose to break off negotiations in what I would describe as a gamble, that he would have a a great World Cup for England, and therefore his leverage in terms of the New Deal would increase. Now, as we know, that didn't happen, and... um, Sterling came back from the World Cup, a little bit tail between the legs. Uh, A lot of people criticising that he had uh, wasted a lot of chances to score goals that he hadn't scored. And indeed, it's true, as you say, um, against Spain and Sevilla uh, was his first goals for England since October 2015. So I fully expect, uh, and what I've heard, is that Manchester City are open to um, going back to the table and speaking again to Eddie Ward, um, Rhymes' agent, about a contract extension to keep him at the Etihad. They, they see him as a very valuable player. And by that, I mean on the football field, as well as what he would be paid. But uh, yet yeah, again, the two goals last night and the manner of the first goal, which I thought was a superb finish, um, suggests to me that um, there will be a, a leverage question once again, um, put to the city board. What I find intriguing in this journey and and Duncan will have a view on this as well is that this is the same Manchester City administration who when it came down to it only, what, eight, nine months ago um, when uh, Alexis Sanchez's agent was saying, well Manchester United are offering us this, are you going to better it? It was Guardiola in, admittedly, a partnership with Chiki Bagherstan, the sporting director who said, no, we're not willing to pay that amount of money for someone who's going to come in and effectively upset the rest of the dressing room because he's achieved nothing for Manchester United and virtually nothing for Arsenal in the case of Sanchez's case um, <clears throat> in order to give him that money. Now, Sterling's in a different category because obviously he's been at Manchester City for three years and has achieved a lot with the club. But again, um, this will be an intriguing uh, tete-a-tete between uh, Sterling's agent and Manchester City as to what exactly the price is going to be for him to sign an extension on his contract. And history at least tells us that his representatives will advise Sterling to chase the money rather, necessarily, than chase the trophies or the glory with the club that he is currently at. Um, And I'm pretty sure Duncan has a view on this with regards to where Sterling might end up.
2: Well, I know that Raheem Sterling um, sees himself in the future playing in Spain um, and would be attracted to either Real Madrid or Barcelona um, and certainly would not be upset about the fact that he scored um, in the manner he did last night in Spain um, to set England on the road to um, a victory that's being uh, praised as the the greatest performance from England uh, in a generation, which I think is uh, rather overdone, but certainly uh, an important one for England and an impressive one. Um, I don't think uh, Sterling uh, sees himself as having any great loyalty to Manchester City in the sense that he would accept um, reduced terms uh, at City uh, relative to what he was to be offered elsewhere uh, because he wanted to stay at the club and because he wanted to continue uh, playing under Pep Guardiola, for example. Um, I think uh, from talking to people who've spent some time with Sterling, and I think if you watch some of his interviews carefully, he, um, he rather bridles at the suggestion that uh, Guardiola is the man responsible for um, the upturn in his performances since uh, the Catalan came to the club. Um, he feels that it's down to his own talent um, and he's not resentful of Guardiola. He appreciates the way he's being used in the team, but he doesn't like the idea that the, that his improvements are all uh, laid at the feet of the coach rather than himself. So you've got a guy who's, who's keen to play in Spain at some point in his career, um, doesn't have any huge um, affinity to the club he's at, uh, only ended up at the club he was at because they were the ones who were prepared to offer him the biggest contract. Last time he was in a similar situation. And I think also we should know he's only 23 years of age. Um, he's been on the scene so long in, uh, as, a, as a, a proper Premier League star, you kind of forget how young he is. So he has a lot of his, his career still ahead of him. Um, so I, th- I think it, it will come down to uh, his agent, seeing what the best opportunities are from, what the best offers are. Um, I don't think Manchester City will sell them. Um, if you look at the history of the way Manchester City have operated since Abu Dhabi took over the club, they've never sold a player. Um, they didn't want to sell. Um, they always retain star players, even when um, they are uh, disgruntled with their situation or would have the opportunity to move elsewhere in a move that's appealing to them. For example, Sergio Aguero has been in that situation in the past. He's always ended up uh, staying there. So I don't think uh, they would take a decision where uh, Sterling to refuse their contract offer and have a better offer um, on the table in the summer from Real Madrid, just to pick one name as an example, that they would decide to cash in. I think they'd probably hold Sterling to the final year of his contract. But by the same token, I think um, Sterling, I don't get the sense that he's going to compromise in any way in this deal. So if it requires him to wait it out to the end of his contract um, to get the better offer elsewhere, if if that situation emerges, then I think he and his agent will be prepared to do that. So it really comes down to whether City um, are prepared to, to meet his demands for an improved salary. His his um, belief that he deserves to be on the top uh, tier of, uh, of, of player wages at Manchester City. And, and to be fair to him, he has a, a good argument for that, given his contributions last season, given the goals he scored, and particularly the nature and timing of, and importance of some of those goals, and giving it, given his general contribution to the team. Um, it's, it's going to be a complicated uh,
1: scenario for city to solve these are situations which you know we've've we've spoken about on the podcast before, but are becoming more and more commonplace in terms of um, clubs either neglecting their best interests by not opening renegotiations at, at earlier moments or even better moments if you like um with players who would cost literally tens of millions of pounds to replace. And in Sterling's case, he moved for around £50 million from Liverpool. Um, You'd have to say that his current market value would be in excess of £100 million. So wages-wise, to replace him, um, or sorry, to keep him, I should say, would be much less than the £100 million mark that they would take to effectively take the transfer fee and then the wages on top of. So... If you're just looking purely at the the balance sheet, you'd have to say that it's within City's interests to give him the contract that he feels he's worth, um, purely on the basis that it would cost him £100 more to replace him, plus the wages on top of that, for a player who they don't know is going to settle in or be as effective for Manchester City as Raheem Sterling is. So increasingly, it is the case that the power is with the player.
0: Well, that's interesting you should mention that because another example of that is uh, Brahim Diaz, who uh, City it looks like are going to struggle to keep a hold of, Duncan.
2: Yeah, they've got a problem with Brahim Diaz. Um, I did uh, call him this week for the Daily Record about his situation. It's a fascinating one because he's one of the young um, talents that uh, Manchester City have invested hugely in um, following the Abu Dhabi takeover. Uh, they didn't just want to improve the first team that They wanted to improve the academy and they wanted to secure top European talents uh, into that academy to feed them into the team as they reach the right age. And Diaz has actually um, been at the club, um, albeit not formally, since he was 13 years of age. He was taken from Malaga's academy. Um, His father was given a job as a scout for Manchester City to allow them to bring the family to England. Um, D has trained with the academy um, until he was 16 uh, when he was uh, legally allowed to sign a contract with the club. I'm told he's been paid a salary of 1 million euros net uh, every year since he was 16. So if you you add all of these things up, their their investment in the player is substantial, probably beyond um, pretty much any uh, 16-year-old that's ever signed to um, an English club. Um, they also he's also uh, represented by pep Guardiola 's brother Pear, so you would think that given all these things the investment in the family in the club having the agent um, being the brother of the manager that that would be a safe situation for them actually it 's not he is out of contract this summer um, he 's not uh, making any rush to sign a new contract i 'm told that there is significant interest um, from across Europe uh, because this is the kind of player that most top clubs are targeting now, a super talented attacking player um, who they know, uh, there's parallels with the Paul Pogba situation at Manchester United, and that they know that they could sign him uh, not quite for free, but for minimal uh, FIFA-mandated training compensation, so a couple of hundred thousand euros which means that they could pay um, upwards of 10 million euros as a signing on fee to the player um, or commission uh, to the agent or, or payments to the father as well as uh, massively increasing his wages in the same way that Juventus took Paul Pogba out of Manchester United uh, at the end of his uh, first professional contract with the club. Um, and the the problem manchester city have not it's not simply that there are other suitors and other suitors prepared to pay big money it's that he doesn't see a clear path into the first team at the moment um if you look at the numbers uh since pep guardiola got got to the club only one um academy player has started a premier league match uh for guardiola's kelechi and actual was sold uh, the subsequent summer Raheem Diaz has made five Premier League appearances for uh, Manchester City under Guardiola, but they've all been kind of token end-of-game appearances, uh, like totaling 50 minutes playing time. And he's, he's in a position as a number 10, someone who plays in that second line of attack, which Manchester City are, are incredibly richly stocked with. So we talked about Raheem Sterling. Um, they just bought Riyad Mahrez for a, a huge fee. Leroy Sani... Um, uh, the previous year uh, they have Kevin De Bruyne albeit he doesn't play in that position anymore but that was the position he was signed to play, could play there again, Bernardo Silva David Silva it's its probably the toughest area of the team to break into and um, Diaz's uh, calculation then has to be, do I stay at a club where um, it's not that he's unhappy with, with the way he's being dealt with or, or or working with Guardiola, he talks very positively about Guardiola as a coach, but do I stay there and not have a guarantee of playing first team football? Or do I need to move somewhere where I know I'm going to be on the pitch, where, where you only properly develop as a top footballer is when you get that playing time. And, it's not just Brian Diaz. Manchester City have already lost Jan- Jadon Sancho, who, who made his debut for England the other night, um, a year ago, to Borussia Dortmund in similar circumstances, albeit they sold him. But it was the player uh, pushing to lead because he wanted playing time. And they've got an issue with Phil Foden, who I suspect will stay because he's a Manchester City fan. Donkey, um, just,
0: I- just to jump in before we start talking about Foden, why on earth has Diaz at 19 not been put out on loan?
2: They wanted to loan uh, Diaz to Girona, um, which is obviously the club that Manchester City um, co owned with per, Guardi- per Guardiola this summer, but he didn't want to go to Girona on loan. So he wants, he, he feels he should be playing for a bigger, more important club um,
1: than Girona. D- 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 we should. Uh, point out as well that this is an issue which um, is prolific across, especially the top six Premier League clubs, and one of the sort of uh, most significant examples of a player whose progress has been stunted by lack of game time, albeit he's had loan spells. Is Ruben Loftus Cheek at Chelsea, who was taken at a similar age uh, to the Chelsea academy, paid very similarly. Duncan has described uh, that Diaz has been paid and, and his family, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, have been looked after, houses bought, etc., and played for England uh, in the World Cup last summer, and yet stayed at Chelsea in the hope of getting starting place at the start of this season. And he's a lot older than Diaz, I think, lost his cheeks now 23, um, and yet has yet to appear for Chelsea in terms of a starting place in the Premier League this season. And it's not, it's not unusual. Unfortunately, this is not an unusual situation in this country because of the pressures of success and everything else. And young players do not get many opportunities to, to prove themselves, certainly not enough in terms of consistency of appearances. Um, it's the you know uh, little cameo here or there, or as Duncan said, you know, 10 minutes at the end of a match, which has been comfortably put to bed, etc. Et and it must be incredibly frustrating for a player who's got a lot of talent, who is performing very, very well um, in his academy team or in training or everything else, to not be allowed the opportunity to show what he can do at first team level. And it is stunting the development of players, whether they're English or or not. That's not the point. The point is that there's a lot of talent in the Premier League, in the academies or in the under-21s or 23s, which is not being allowed to show what they can do or develop sp- Properly, I would say, in the competitive environment of the Premier League. Um, and as a result, teams will continue to go out and spend 50, 60, 70 million pounds on players who they believe are guaranteed, inverted commas, uh, to hit the ground running and be uh, effective members of uh, a Premier League side competing for honours, etc, etc. And is this is is there any point therefore to the investment, huge investment that permanent clubs make in academy players, not just in um, the investment in their training, but the salaries that they're paid and the the, the benefits to their families, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, if they're not actually going to be given the opportunity to show what they can do? Okay,
0: moving on to this weekend's clash between Chelsea and Manchester United at Stamford Bridge, a 12.30 kick-off on Saturday. Duncan, what is your take on how this game is going to unfold? You've got Sari, who's had a terrific start at Chelsea. He's got the team playing fantastic football. And Mourinho, who, well, I think we've uh, discussed in detail the situation at Manchester United. How do you see this one going?
2: Um, I think it's a fascinating game. Because as you say, Sari has the team playing really well. He has the team uh, extremely optimistic. Um, uh, I, think, I don't think I've seen so many... Interviews with uh, players under a new manager talking about how how great it is playing for them, how much they're enjoying it, and it, possibly that's got a lot to do with the fact the last manager was Antonio Conte, who who bored them rigid with his uh, training methods, and um, and uh, basically was picking fights with everyone in, in the club for the last his last uh, year there. But still, it's clear that Sari. Um, Sari has a personality about them that appeals to the players, and they like playing his football. and And it's not surprising because it is; um, it's a high risk style. Um, he's asking them to do things that the Conte wouldn't have allowed them to do, and uh, Josie Mourinho wouldn't have allowed them to do in most circumstances. Uh, they're they're trying to hit quick, uh, tight passes in in around the opponent's press in their own half of the field to release. Uh, they're midfielders uh, beyond the opposition's uh, back line they're risking uh, by putting a lot of attacking players forward so the, the two um, the two number eights they push beyond the defensive line and leave, and don 't leave many guys back if they if they were to be hit in the counter um, and it's it's working for them I think it's um it 's a fascinating game because this is kind of the challenge that jose Mourinho has always thrived on. Um, he loves matches where he's playing against a form team um, who uh, have a certain tactical pattern. Um, and Sari uh, does have some similarities to Conte in that he um, drills the players to attack in specific ways, um, which, if you study um, their, the, the way they've been playing, are, are obvious. And I, I think Mourinho will be well aware of those and he will, will be devising plans to one, take advantage of that passing in the um, in the, the deep areas of the field, the risk taking the deep areas of the field, and two, take advantage of the way they expose themselves when they send their midfielders forward. So the opportunities to um, to score in the counter attack. Uh, so it's set up for him in in that way to come away uh, from a ground where he would take great pleasure in um, getting a result, uh, particularly a win, um, if he can get the Manchester United players to implement his plans properly. And I think that's the the big if, um, whether they are capable of performing to the level required. And I don't think, I'd be very surprised if, despite all the calls for, uh, you saw what happened after Newcastle when you attacked, um, that's how you need to play every game. I'd be very surprised if they go to Chelsea and start in that fashion um, with, you know, most of the players up the field in a a very aggressive style i think they will there's a possibility they'll attack early on but they'll attack in a controlled way um and and it will be there'll be a a definite plan um and i'm interested to see how Sari responds to that if if that plan has an effect against him whether he's got a, a solution prepared himself and whether he's got variations in the way that chelsea have been playing so far this season because i think his history at napoli is that he's very much wedded to one particular way of playing, which is very good to watch and effective, and also a very limited set of players. So he, he tends to, um, has a tendency to tire his players out by not rotating very
1: much. I think the key, um, in terms of goal chances um, created and and effectively converted, uh, will, be, will come in the channels for this one. I suspect Marshall and Rashford will start on the flanks. For Manchester United, because uh, what we've seen so far with Chelsea this season is that where they are a little bit vulnerable is when Aspeliqueter and Marcus Alonso push on, which they all, well they always have been vulnerable in that sense. Um, both very good defenders, but very very um uh, sort of tempted to move further up the park than maybe they should do. I don't think Chelsea's defense has been entirely convincing this season uh, in terms of the way that they conceded goals. Um, Lukaku is someone who will always tear center half one way and the other in terms of both his physical presence but also his movement uh, of the ball as well. So I'll be very, very interested to see how Mourinho um, plays the ball into those channels for Martial and Rashford. Uh, I think Martial is one of the most improved players in the last month of the Premier League um, and Rashford obviously scored for England. Again, against Spain on Monday night, it will be full of contests coming back as well. I see this as a game that Mourinho will believe if he can get a win, it will re-establish or certainly make other title contenders look up and take notes of Manchester United again, uh, given Chelsea's um, record already this season. And obviously with the Manchester derby very much on the horizon as well, it's something that um, Mourinho needs to look at as a winnable game, and needs to, I think, set his team up in a way that they 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 can win, not just not lose, which has often been his uh, mantra in the past. Um, at games like this, I, I think we'll see a, a, an attacking uh, Manchester United side, and also, of course, you have a Chelsea who under Sarri have been very impressive and 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 eye catching. In many ways, but I think very heavily dependent on Eden Hazard. Very obviously dependent on Eden Hazard. They have a, a lack of goals from strikers, um, and Morata and Giroud have have been very patchy to say the least in terms of goal scoring. Um, they've they tend to pose a great threat from set pieces, uh, and they overload the box, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's something which Manchester United have not been very good at defending this season so far. So I think we'll see a contrast of styles, really, in terms of the way the game has played out. And I, I do think that, that Chelsea will rely very um, much on Hazard again and his genius. But I do think that the Martial-Rashford-wide uh, combination could be the key uh, to the outcome of the game. 2-1 Chelsea for me. Duncan, what's your prediction? Uh, 1-1. Ian? 1 0 Manchester United. Oh,
0: okay. Interesting. Right, we're going to move on to the quickfire round now. And what we're going to do, in the spirit of a tweet that went out from uh, the 90s football account last week, we're going to ask both of our pundits to create their own five side team. But the catch is that they have to use the first initial of their surname to pick the players. So, for example, with me being McFarlane, it would have to be M names. So we're going to start with uh, you Duncan, what's your five-a-side dream team beginning with C?
2: Uh, I start with a goalkeeper and I'd have um a Chelsea legend, uh, Petr Cech.
1: Not Iker Casillas, unbelievable.
2: Uh there's there's some problems with Iker Casillas. He's not great in the dressing room.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who told you that
2: To be fair to Casillas you could never take a high ball And at least you, you exclude that from five-a-side football So you've got Very one of other
1: weaknesses Ian, who's your goalie? I'm going to go for the great moustache of Hamish McAlpine A man who faced up to the legends of the game During his time at Dundee United And faced him down And I think was one of the great shot-stoppers And never got the, um, the credit that he deserved Because in a time when uh, goalkeeper's uh, were obviously much more focused on saving shots and less than playing out from the back. McAlpine was one of the best. So I, I'm going to go Hamish McAlpine at number one.
2: Also a penalty kick taker. Absolutely. Also one of the best distributors of the ball as a goalkeeper of all time. He would be perfect for the modern game with Hamish.
0: Duncan, who have you got sweeping up at the back for you?
2: I've got um, an X2 or a, a couple of uh, Brazilian World Cup winning captains. um First one would be Carlos Alberto, um, for, who uh, is that first
1: as... name or second name?
2: <laughs> <You're laughs> <straight>, Stretch that <laughs> as usual. I was expecting I was, this. ian so, if, if if you want to do the which which one's the uh the the uh the qualifying name, I'll I'm have joking. Roberto Carlos. i Roberto Carlos or Carlos Alberto. Your
1: choice. One of the two. <laughs>
2: And then my other uh, my other Brazilian World Cup captain is uh, Cafu, um, who not only was uh, one of my favourite fullbacks of all time, also had the pleasure of interviewing him in Hungary um, towards the tail end of his career. And the man is an absolute gentleman.
0: Okay, Ian, who have you got um, to match up with Duncan's? Uh...
1: Well, uh, again, it depends on the formation. You're in a 5 or team, Johnny. I hate to be sort of you know a little no, bit no, pedantic no. about this, as always, but um i would have to have lotar mateas in front of hamish um because he is one of the most sort of, gifted uh um, sort of i'd say both uh destroyers and passers um of his generation uh, he could both he could do both the tackle and uh the through ball with um, the same amount of of skill um and effectiveness so i'd say lotar in front of hamish okay and just
0: just in front seeing Duncan give us two he's obviously going for the stable base at the bottom of his
1: five, but you're going for a slightly more attacking option uh, yeah i am i am i would i would put um I, I don't want to sort of um sort of split hairs here et cetera et cetera but I'd have to have um that's
0: a bit cruel on duncan
1: L- indeed it is and <laughs> and also very dangerous. Uh, so I'm splitting Duncan's hairs, and uh, I've El, Di- El Diego playing, playing just in, just just beside her in front of Lotar. i and have Maradona in there. Obviously, um, I've got to take advantage of the M's here, and have Maradona. I, and I, I promise I will go back to M C later in this team.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure it's that stable a base uh, that I've got there, Johnny. It's uh, two of the two of the most notorious attacking fullbacks of all time, but. Uh... At least they can tackle occasionally. Well, my playmaker uh, in the midfield would be Johan Cruyff. Nice. Another another player who was brilliant in tangerine. <laughs> You'd think he'd be pretty comfortable with the fast passing
0: style of five-a-sides, given his uh, predilection towards rondos.
2: I don't think he'd struggle with the game. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's, it's before my time, so I don't really. I've not seen a lot of Cruyff, uh, bar from the odd uh, video clip. I know you guys would have seen him live.
1: So, all right, for me, uh, Johnny, um, I'm going to give a very free roll to uh, the greatest player probably ever, Leo Messi. I can't obviously resist having him in there, but as I say, I'll make no apologies on the basis of my final choice, which everyone's obviously waiting in bated breath for.
2: Duncan? I thought you were going to pick Mac Messi, Ian, as opposed to Leo Messi.
1: Oh, no, well. no, 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 no. I said I, I've got one surprise to come. <laughs> OK,
2: right. My, my final pick uh, would be a Manchester United and uh, France hero up front. Um, I think a good partnership with Johan Cruyff. Certainly an entertaining one. Uh, Eric Cantona.
1: Oof! Oof! Oof. he's done in cold there. <laughs> Cruyff
0: and Cantona up front. Cant- That's not bad, Hans. is it?
1: To be fair, there's absolutely no way those those two would have to have different dressing rooms. <laughs> <laughs> Because there's no way that Cruyff could put up with Cantona and vice versa, that's for sure.
2: Which is why I can't pick Eka Casillas. Yes.
1: All right, Johnny, so my, my last... Uh, and I, you know, I've built, built him up here, and I sincerely hope that no one will be let down by the MC, uh, is the one and only Frank McGarvey up front. A man, <laughs> a man whose touch and scoring prowess was legendary in 1980s Scottish football. Um, Thousands of our
0: listeners are going,
1: who? Who? Frank McGarvey. <laughs> He's the man. Honestly, if you put Frank McGarver in a team with Leo Messi, then he would score about, I don't know, 127 goals per game, never mind season. Um, He was just the ultimate finisher and he he was just all round uh, team player as well. And uh, having had the uh, privilege of seeing him in my youth um, as an MC, I could not. And in fact, an MCG as well. There you go. Uh, we're not talking about Melbourne Cricket Club. Uh so he was absolutely for me uh gotta be including that five side team. I reckon five a side football is probably more suited to 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 Frank than it was eleven sides. so there you go. Will we just clarify
2: what kind of scoring prowess you're referring to with Frank McGarvey?
1: <laughs> Goals, generally. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry, Duncan, did you think I said Frank McAveni? <laughs> I think, actually, McIverney would be better. Oh, oh, controversial. oh, controversial. Well, I've got a story to tell about that one day, but not on this podcast. Okay, well. we'll everyone's, for got, everyone's got a Maca story, and, yep. and my, mine was in the toilet of a very well-known restaurant of, uh, in Prince's Square after they lost to Rangers in an old firm game, and he broke his arm. Right,
0: that's worrying. To be honest
1: Oh I'm no don't, oh, don't worry there was, there was no funny business I can right. assure you It was just an interesting conversation Well I think
0: Given that it's a family show And we're about to get into A Frank McIverney story It's probably best <laughs> that I call, out, call time on this just a reminder, we're looking for a podcast sponsor. So if you like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window official account, at Transfer Podcast, so get following. We're trying to build a community on that account, so everyone who does follow will get a follow back. To talk to us directly, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, and more importantly, our pundits are... At Duncan Castles and at Garpo Hg If you like the podcast and we know thousands of you do, please, please, please give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm as ever. Until next time, thanks for listening.